0: So, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians and chapter Four, if you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page number one one, eight seven. and then the larger print, it's page number eighteen thirty seven. So, as you find that, let me start off by saying adoption is an amazing thing. A child who doesn't have a a stable home can be given a new home where they can be properly cared for and brought up. Adoption is something that is great because it gives children a new start, a caring family. Sometimes children are adopted around the ages of five to 10 years old. And when children are adopted around this age, they have to conform to the new family. No longer do they worry about the next meal, a bed to sleep in, or harm, but they can settle into new life in a new loving and stable home. But it can take time for them to settle in, and adopted children must learn how to live in the new home they are brought into. Their lives have changed for the better, and now they live out that changed life. The book Thessalonians is laid out in a similar way in chapters 1 to 3 Paul has talked about the conversion of these Thessalonians and how they are doing so well in their new life as believers firstly Paul has told the Thessalonians what it means for them to be Christians and how this came about Paul has told these new believers of the amazing change that has happened to them how they've been reconciled to God through Jesus And now as we go into chapters 4 and 5, Paul starts a new section. And this section is about how to live out that changed life, how to live as a sanctified believer. What does it look like to live out this new life in Jesus? Just like an adopted child comes into a new family and learns how to live in their new home, the Thessalonians and us as Christians... When we were saved, our lives were totally transformed by Jesus. And now as believers, we're called to live out that changed life. So let's now read from First Thessalonians chapter 4 and see what that new life, that changed life, looks like. So First Thessalonians chapter 4, reading from verses 1 to 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters... We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. When I was younger, I had the the big question on my mind so often. What is God's will for my life? I remember thinking, how can I find out God's will for my life? Who should I marry? What job should I do? Where should I live? And many more questions. What if I get it wrong? I'm sure many of us can relate to this. In today's passage, Paul outlines God's will for us quite clearly and simply. Verse 3, God's will for your life is, you should be sanctified. You should be sanctified, set apart for God. Live in his way in obedience to his word. God's will for his people is to be a people who live for him. God's will for you and me is to be sanctified. Notice verse 3, now that is clear, as God's people we should be sanctified, that's God's will for us. But what does it mean to be sanctified? Looking back at the Old Testament, temple construction can help us. In the Old Testament, as a temple was being built and different sacrifices were being ordained, there were lots of different items and parts made for a unique use. For example, the altar of incense in Exodus 30. This altar, as we can guess, is made for a unique purpose. And it can be, and it's obviously used to burn incense on. The altar of incense was set apart for a unique purpose. It could be said it was sanctified. As God's people, we are set apart for a unique purpose. And that purpose is outlined throughout the Bible. And we see that in three ways in this passage. Point number one, we see uh, we are set apart to be sexually pure. Number two, we are set apart to love the church. And lastly, we are set apart to walk an orderly life. So point number one, we are set apart to be sexually pure. Verses one to eight. In sports nowadays... We always see new, young sports talents coming to the top level. And these people progress and get better and better. And once they've achieved something great, like winning a tournament or a trophy or a medal, they get plenty of advice by their coaches. And usually their coaches tell them, keep doing what you are doing. You become successful by training and working hard, Therefore, keep doing what you've been doing. Keep going about your work the way you've always done it. As we step into chapter 4, Paul outlines to the Thessalonians about the instructions he's given them. And we see in verses 1 and 2 that the Thessalonians not only knew these instructions, but they were also living them out. Paul is addressing a church that is living a life pleasing to God. And Paul tells them, not only to keep doing this, but do what you are doing more and more, as we see at the end of verse 1. This church Paul is writing to is a church that is living out the changed life of the uh, the Christian. But even though this church is displaying godliness, Paul sees it fit to reinforce these commandments again that he's already addressed. Notice verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. We need to address sexual immorality. So what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality simply is any sexual expression outside of the bond of marriage between one man and one woman. This includes premarital sex. also includes sex with somebody who you're not married to, sex with somebody of the same sex. This also includes watching internet pornography, looking at somebody you aren't married to with lustful desire. Sex is God's design for two people to share in the union of marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that in thought or deed is sexual immorality. And we must hear God's word, you should avoid sexual immorality. The literal word is keep away, keep away from sexual immorality. But as I've outlined sexual immorality, this can be a sensitive subject. This is an area, if we're all honest, we've all failed in. Whether we've failed in thought or deed, we can be sure we've all failed in this area. But there's no excuse. Just because we've all maybe failed here or struggled here, it doesn't excuse our sin. We are all responsible for our sin. But if you are hearing this today and you feel condemned by your sexual sin, let me tell you one thing God is merciful. God is merciful. However broken you may feel, hear God's word. Hear hear Jesus' words from, from Matthew 12, 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is for another time. But look at what Jesus says. Every kind of sin can be forgiven. If we go to God with our sin... He will forgive us through Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's from 1 John 1, 9. This is clear, our past sexual sin and our present sexual sin can be forgiven and it is forgiven if we go to the Lord for forgiveness. One side is that God is merciful. God will forgive us in Jesus. But if you are somebody who is living in sexual sin and there's no repentance, no turning away from that sin, then you need to fear. Notice 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the wrong that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is serious. Hear God's word. Don't be deceived. If sexual sin is present in your life, You need to repent. It's vital. The sexual immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. I urge you today, whether you censure a Christian or not, I urge you to turn away from that sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Sexual sin will give you pleasure today, but hell tomorrow. Hear the warning. Turn to Christ who forgives all our sin if we go to him. Notice verse 4. This verse is one of the hardest to translate in the, in the New Testament. There are four, there's four alternatives to this verse, and I'm not going to go into loads of detail. But the word body is the word for vessel. And some have translated it to mean wife. Since in the first century, men would refer to wa- their wife as a vessel. And this should be in the footnotes in your Bible. So verse 4 is sometimes translated as learn how to require a wife or learn how to live with your, your wife. And that would help stop sexual immorality. But with the context of this passage and the letter being addressed to the church as a whole, it's clear Paul is talking to all, the unmarried and the married. It's clear sexual immorality can be present in somebody married and also somebody unmarried. Therefore, the translation that we have in our our Bibles, which says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, I think that's the the correct uh, translation. But notice the implications to this. As Christians, we should learn how to control our own bodies in holiness. This is something we are to do by God's help. Paul gives us positive and negative application. We are to learn how to control our bodies in holiness and honor. Notice verse 5. We are not to live in lust and passion like the pagans who do not know God. I come from a farming background and it's well known that sheep can occasionally slip into the mud and be muddy for a time. But ultimately, a sheep will not stay that way. Sheep like to be clean. Sheep will only stay in the mud for so long. But on the other hand, a pig will just wallow in the mud. A pig will enjoy the mud and stay in it. A pig loves to be constantly muddy. And in a similar way, Christians may fall into sexual sin. A Christian may backslide into it, but a Christian cannot stay there. A true Christian wants to be clean. A true Christian knows that's not how they should be living. But unbelievers, they know their sin and they love it and live in it and don't desire to turn away from it. Notice verses 4 and 5. We have two options in how we live. We either live in holiness and honor, or we live in lust and passion. We either live as those who know God, or we live as those who don't know God. This can be different for us all, but in what ways do you need to learn to control your body? How can we get super practical here? Be somebody who asks themselves the question daily, what does it look like for me in this situation to be holy? As you go through your day, ask yourselves that question, what does it look like for me to live in holiness today? Maybe that will be keeping away from that person at work who causes you to sin, possibly in thought or deed. Maybe it will mean not being on the internet while you're alone. Maybe it'll mean ending a relationship with an unbeliever. Sexual purity is costly, but these are the high standards of God. And if we are sexually pure, we are actually living a life that is for our own good. God's commands aren't to restrict our fun or pleasure, but it's because he cares and he knows best how we ought to live. God only ever calls us to do things for our own good. Paul continues in verse six. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. In the matter of sexual sin, no one should transgress or take advantage of a brother or sister. Many people, some would even claim to be in the church. They say, sex is okay as long as you don't harm anyone. Some say, porn is okay because no one is harmed. As long as you love each other, it's okay to have sex. No, this is totally false. All sexual immorality harms someone. It may harm a future marriage. It may break up a family. Where there is sexual immorality, there's always somebody being harmed. Look at the end of verse 6. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. The Lord's punishment here isn't a form of discipline for genuine believers. No, this is eternal wrath that comes on the unbelieving world. Those who practice and live in sexual immorality receive God's punishment. If we say we trust Jesus, yet we dismiss his commands, we deceive ourselves. The Bible tells in Romans, oh, Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, de- the misdeeds of the body you will live. Let me make it crystal clear. If we live a sexually moral life, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe you're sat here today and you truly do love Jesus. Yet from time to time you slip up. You feel awful because you keep going back every so often. You know it's wrong. You know you want to turn away, but you feel trapped in a cycle. A cycle of repentance and back to sin. Let me urge you, keep going. Keep seeking to put that sin to death. We're called to progress. It's not an instant change, but a gradual change. Christ won't give up on his people. If you fall down seven times, Christ will pick you up. Keep going to Jesus. Keep hold of him turn to him and put that sin to death through his power in you god calls us to be pure this is positive it's not a push everything away but it's a positive enjoyment of living pleasing to the kind heavenly father who loves us and gives us commands for our own good and his commands lead us to live the best way we can Look at, verse, look at verse 8. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. Anyone who rejects sexual purity isn't rejecting my word or Paul's word, but it's actually rejecting God. Notice that our sexual sin isn't just harmful to others, but it's against God. It's rejection of God. Look at the end of verse verse 8. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Paul finishes his commands on sexual purity by telling us the very agent in which God's people can avoid sexual immorality. God gives you his Holy Spirit. If you cast your eye back to verse 3, you should be sanctified. There are two things that bring about true change in the Christian. Firstly, we should be sanctified. And being sanctified is true for us in past tense, present tense, and future tense. Past tense, we are sanctified. We're made holy through the work of Jesus and putting our trust in him. Present tense, we are being sanctified. Progressive sanctification, where we're being made holy and put into death sin through this life, but that's a lifelong battle. In future tense, we will one day, when Christ returns, we will be completely sanctified, free from sin. But why am I mentioning them? You see, this passage is talking about our progressive sanctification, the lifelong battle against sin. But the way we be sanctified now is to know that we have been sanctified in Christ. Each and every one of us, if we're believers in Christ, we are sanctified. We're holy in God's sight. Therefore, we're called as Christians to live out that life, live out the sanctified life. We're no longer people who live sexually moral lives. We have been washed and changed, and we're called to live out a righteous life. Knowing who we are in Christ is vital to our growing in holiness. And secondly, the way we are sanctified is through the Holy Spirit. God has given every single one of his people the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is making God's people holy. If you are a believer in Jesus, God has given you everything you need for him. And now we come to this verse. So 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have the Holy Spirit in us and we can live God's way by his power. But how does that all fit together? Do we just pray that the, the Holy Spirit would zap us with power and with obey? No, notice Galatians 5, 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do we walk by the Spirit? We simply look at God's Word. We see how He wants us to live and we do it while trusting the Holy Spirit to empower us. Walk by the Spirit. Look at God's Word Seek to obey it while trusting and asking the Holy Spirit to help you. It's really that simple, but this is a daily thing. Sexual purity doesn't happen overnight. It's a daily commitment. So as I close this section, God's standards of sexual purity are high. Maybe they look too tricky to reach, but know two things. You are sanctified in Christ, so live out who you are. And secondly, God has given us all power we need to be pure by the Holy Spirit in us. So trust him as you seek to obey God's word. On the internet, there's many Christian websites and YouTube channels, and often these are places where you can ask questions, and a lot of the questions are about sexual sin, and it's great to address these questions but often among young people sexual sin is a priority sin it's the main sin this leads us to think that if we are living a sexually pure life then we're doing really well we're okay because our lives are characterized by sexual purity but that's not the case sexual sin is not the only sin we commit god calls us to be set apart sexually pure but also god calls us as a church to be To love one another. Notice verses 9 and 10. We are set apart to love the church. Paul talks of this church, the church that is characterized by love. He's talking to people who do love each other. They've been taught by God how to love each other. But notice the end of verse 10. We urge you to do so more and more. Paul calls them to love more, push on, excel in love for each other. You see, Paul has talked about sexual purity and now he goes into love. Sexual purity and love for each other go together. When we sin sexually, we do it through self-love. We do it to gratify the desires of our own wicked hearts. We do it because we love ourselves whether that is on our own or with somebody else. Sexual sin comes through self-love. But the Thessalonians and us too are taught by God how we should love. We're taught by God in two ways. Firstly, by his example in sending his son Jesus to die for our sins, that we might be saved through trusting in him. That is sacrificial love. And then secondly, we're taught to love each other through the Holy Spirit in us, guiding us to love each other. We are saved and set apart by God through Jesus as a people, a church, a people united through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and we're a people called to love one another. But I urge us all, myself including, to do this more and more. We can do this by praying for each other, We can do this by being interested in each other's lives. We can do this by serving in the church. We can do this by inviting people over for a meal. We can do this in so many ways, but we always can improve in this area. But being sexually pure and loving our church family can often be hindered by our lack of diligence. A massive yet often missed sin is the sin of slothfulness or laziness. This hinders us massively as Christians. Notice the last part. Verses 11 to 12. We are set apart to live an orderly life. We are to be sexually pure. We are to love each other. But often when our lives are disorganized and we lack productivity, it usually flows into our spiritual lives. When we are lazy and slothful physically, that generates laziness spiritually. This can lead to prayerlessness and lack of God's, uh, study of God's Word, which in time makes us weak because we lack God's nearness and knowledge of His power. And when this occurs, we can be prone to temptation, which means an orderly life is vital to being sexually pure and loving each other. If we structure our lives orderly and we pray, we read God's Word and stay near to God, We have knowledge of his power and are more equipped to fight against sin and lovelessness towards our church. Therefore, structure your day around prayer and study of God's word. Don't fit prayer into your day, but let your days be structured around prayer. Make a time each day to read God's word and pray. This is nothing new and it's so simple, yet so often something we miss. Notice verse 11 as we come to a close. Work with your hands. God calls us to work. Work is good. Work is a pre-fall ordination. If we can work but don't, we are not living in God's will for our lives. Sometimes we have circumstances in our life where we're retired or can't work or can't find a job or undertaking childcare or need to keep the home in order. And God does not call us to work in those or maybe some similar circumstances. But God's will is usually for us to work. So that will, verse 12, win over outsiders and also will be dependent on no one. And if we work, then we are also able to support others who cannot work. Working, though it can be stressful at times, ultimately it's a gift from God, something to keep our minds active, something to help us and provide for our needs. And working keeps us away from idleness and temptation. We are set apart to be sexually pure. We are set apart to love one another. And we're set apart to live an orderly life. And if we do this, we'll be on our way to living out the sanctified life that God has called us to live. In the next section, we'll be looking at the second coming of Jesus. As we wait for him, what sort of people should we be? We are people who have put our past behind us, whatever that might be. And now, today, we seek to be sexually pure. We seek to love one another in the church and we live an orderly life. Let's stand and sing to close. We'll sing about Jesus' commitment to us, then we'll sing of our commitment to Jesus. So let's let's stand and worship together as we close. Let's close with some words from the end of 1 Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.